Welcome to the Dharma Spring. So while we're taking up specifically precepts and vows and refuge here, the spirit of in which we take those up is really the spirit of our tradition. Um, so what I'm talking about now speaks to a larger thing than just the precepts. It's really the way we work with our practice in general here. And um, then I'll move more specifically into the vows and precepts area. And then we'll open it up for everybody. Yeah. Um, but one thing that I notice that we humans tend to want is for somebody to give us the formula or the recipe about how to live our lives. It's like we want somebody else to figure it out for us and say, here's how you do it. And many traditions do that, secular, religious. We do that ourselves. We make up our own, this is how I'm supposed to do it, and we, we solidify it. And so looking at that dynamic that happens as a course of having a human life, our practice is more about unrecipeing, unformulaing. It's a deconstructive practice. It's to take apart what has been built. Because when something's built, it becomes solid and fixed. Life is not solid and fixed, it's dynamic and flowing. And so we look at the structures that we have built ourselves or that we've inherited, that we're living within or maybe confined by, and we work to take them apart, open up the space, and then from that more open space, do something. So I was sticking with the, the recipe side of this. And um, we'll talk about that dynamic in regard to having a recipe. And I'm thinking about we, we've baked a compassion cake, yeah? We had a recipe that we wanted to be more compassionate, so we put all these ingredients together and we baked this compassion cake. Because compassion is one of those things we hear about a lot in Buddhism. So you have this set, fixed, already made compassion that we've created, individually perhaps. And we're ready to slice it up and give people, you know, a little taste of compassion. But if you look at it, it's like you have this one cake, it's got its fixed ingredients. If you serve that one particular cake to everybody, not everybody's going to be satisfied because some people may be allergic to what's in there. and That just may not be the flavor they like. So to have just this one cake of compassion to serve doesn't really serve us or others very well. So the first step here is to unbake the cake. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> Once it's baked, it's pretty much there. So maybe getting to the point where you don't even bake it. Everything's put together. You've got that gooiness of the batter ready to go, but don't bake it yet, right? That would be the first thing we do, to un the unning of things. So unbake it if you can, or maybe don't even bake it. Then when you're following a recipe, usually after you mix the ingredients, it says let things settle. 
So the next step in unning is to unsettle the ingredients. Settling is things get grounded and anchored and rooted and solidified. So undo that. Unsolidify, unground, unsettle the ingredients. Then to unfurther is to unmix them. You know, Once the ingredients get mixed together, they become a different whole. Take them apart again. Unmix them so you can know the different aspects and the ingredients that went in there. Because then you have an opportunity to mix them in different ways and leave some out and add a little bit more of this and you'll come up with a different flavor each time. So then you have all the ingredients there available, right? Then you have to go beyond that and don't just limit yourself to those ingredients. There's other ingredients to be used. And maybe some of these are not necessary anymore or for that particular recipe at this particular time for what you're addressing. So I'm imagining our tradition coming forward with, well, Buddhism in general, our, our tradition mixed in with that, they might come forward and say, here are the ingredients for your compassion cake. And there's a way to mix them and a way to make them into something solid that you can serve. Then going, well, wait a minute. This isn't, this isn't all the ingredients. There's a few more. I know where you can go get them, but they're not here yet. But I can tell you how to go find those ingredients. But there might be ingredients I've not even heard of yet. And so you might want to keep your eye open for other ingredients that we have yet to discover. And know that there's probably a place to go get them and you can go find them. So don't limit yourself to these ingredients or even the places you usually find these type of ingredients. But just know you can add more and take away from this and create the recipe for compassion. Again, for this particular circumstance. And then I'm going back going, well, maybe even that's saying too much. Maybe I should take all these ingredients away from you and just say, there is something to be made and there are ingredients that go into making it. And there's a way to get those ingredients and discover what they are, but I think that's enough. Just knowing that that's possible to create this recipe and find a way, maybe that's all you need to know. Gives you the motivation to go and discover where are these ingredients, how do I combine them each time we do that. And it's to trust that you inherently have what you need within you or by having free access, free and open access to it. It's inherently a part of being human, is having it and being able to get it. And you don't have to go far to find it. To trust that you have all, all you need and you're infinitely capable and have a, the capacity to do this. So trust that, lean into that area. That would be the spirit we're approaching this with. Not trying to say, get rid of what you already have. It's like, oh, go deeper into what you already have and, and trust that you have it or can get it. Or and can get it.
So I want to go more specifically into vows and precepts by their nature. This time we're talking about what is the nature of taking vows and taking up precepts and taking refuge. So what I want to do in my talking about those things is what we see when we look at our ceremony is there's an unin that happens each time. Instead of the vows saying, here's what to do, each one of them says, I vow not to kill, steal, lie. But every one of them says, I vow not to. And then it's up to us to figure out, well, what will I do? So I'm going to go to what vows and precepts are not to, to follow that formula. <laughs> um, first, they're not commandments or rules. They might look like that. They might seem familiar to other commandments and rules you're, that you are familiar with, but they are not commandments or rules. And as such, when you break them, there's no eternal damnation. There's no hellfire waiting for you anywhere at the end of things. You know, there's nothing at the end of your life you're trying to avoid by taking up these precepts or that you will be committed to when you break them. The damnation and hellfire is much more immediate. <laughs> it, sometimes the moment the thing comes out of your mouth or the action happens, you feel it, right? Or maybe it's a few days, somebody talks to you and says, hey, you know that thing? And then you go, ah, oh, then you're in hell. So that's the good news. You don't have to wait for it. It's, it's more immediate. But the other good news is it's not lasting and eternal. You will have to work through what you need to work through to be released of it. So you can't ignore it, but it won't last, yeah? So there is damnation, again, it's just more immediate and not eternal. <laughs> um, and the other side of it is try your best to uphold and keep the precepts and you know, honor your vows, but understand that breaking them and not honoring them is how you uphold them. It's how you do better. Otherwise, there'd be no reason to take vows or precepts. And these are impossible to keep. So if you find yourself getting hard on yourself to, I've got to keep these, give yourself a break. These are by their nature impossible. You can't keep them. I always, when, we, when I have this conversation, when we take these up, I recall a story my teacher, one of them, told me about in the Tibetan tradition, they say, you know, Take your vows, do your best, and when you break them, the first thing you should do is celebrate. Yeah? And the sense was conveyed from that side of things of celebrate that you held it for as long as you held it, or upheld it for as long as you did. A minute, a day, a year, but celebrate that. For me, it's more celebrate the fact that you broke it. Because, ah, if you didn't break it, you might have think you've mastered it, and then you're not paying attention. <laughs> so celebrate the fact that you did the natural thing of breaking a precept.
or a vow. Um, so while these aren't commandments or rules, they are also not something that comes with some magical quality to improve your lives, like instant, in, um, instant betterment of your life. And I have worked with people sometimes who wanted to go through the process of taking vows and precepts, and the idea was by doing so, it's going to help me be able to figure out my life. And we didn't go along at that time with taking the vows and precepts because that's not what they're here for. There's no, nothing magical that will happen to you by engaging the, in these. There's something very real and practical that will happen to you. It's in your life. You'll look at your life. You'll explore it. So don't turn to these to save you in any way. There's no salvation here either. Um, no eternal salvation. You're not building up anything. Um, so, just like damnation, the salvation is more immediate. You'll realize the benefit and the joy of upholding and you know, sharing the precept in your life more, more immediately. And like damnation, it won't last. You've got to keep doing it. You, you keep working at it to do better. Um, so you can't really, really ever be settled once and for all. And Ah, I've accomplished it. Um, and the other thing is that the good that you encounter, that salvation, so to speak, you're not meant to hold on to it. You're meant to give that away. And that's why it doesn't last. Otherwise, you're being greedy. <laughs> you know? The joy, whatever you find by upholding the precept or the vow and honoring life, honoring yourself, honoring others, enjoy it and then give it away as soon as possible so that the next thing can come. They also, the other thing they are not is set in stone. One aspect of that is that the ancestors, you know, this has been a part of, our, part of the Buddhist tradition from its beginnings, 2,500 years ago or so, having vows and precepts and guidelines. And ancestors in our tradition since that time have looked at these and written things and said things about them. But these are not set in stone, which goes back to them not being rules. They're really just suggestions, guidelines. And the dynamic of it is many people before us, even outside of our tradition, have found that you know, when you don't kill, when you don't lie, and when you don't do these other things that they say not to do, Life seems to go easier. So saying, in my experience, when you don't do those things, it's easier. So I recommend, I suggest, not doing that. <laughs> and also, go ahead and do it and notice what it's like and see if that's true. Maybe, maybe it's not true. And that's how a lot of the Buddhist teachings are. They're not truths that we need to set in stone. They're just realizations people have had and they say, well, try it out and see what you yourself find. Um, it's like a Zen saying, if you want to know how hot the tea is, you have to drink it for yourself, or what it tastes like. You must drink it for yourself. I could describe, I know this isn't tea, <laughs> but I could describe the flavor and everything to you and, and give you as much as I can, but until you take the drink yourself, you won't know. So this is the recommended dose or non-dosage, it's up to you to 
Give it a taste yourself. Yeah. <laughs> mm. And then the other way they're not set in stone has to do with the ceremony we have in particular. But what each of us will be exploring throughout this process is, like I said before, the precepts saying, this is what not to do, but it's up to us to find out what will we do, what do we do. So we get to state that. We get to say, this is how I'm going to do my best in this particular arena. And we don't do that alone. First of all, we have a community here. But it's not just our time and place that we do that. We try to figure out what to do with our lives with all of the help from our ancestors. Everything they've gone through, the advice they give us, that helps us try to figure out what to do. And then we look at the world around us. What does it need? What does it call us to do? By looking at that and paying attention, it gives us a direction to go, and it's telling us what it needs if we can pay attention to that closely enough. And then we have our personal experience. The recipes we've come up with, the experiences we had of trying to figure out this life, we combine the three of those, the ancestral, the provisional, and the personal. And let all three of those collaborate as we try to figure out what to do with this life and how to better it and ourselves in the process. All right, coming around the corner to the end of my, my opening talk here, I just want to speak particularly to the Bodhisattva Way. Our ceremony is called Taking Refuge in the Bodhisattva Way. And so we're, what we're up to here is the Bodhisattva Way. I want to talk about what that is, what that means to me. The first thing I notice is that um, it's the Bodhisattva Way. And way is a dynamic thing. It's a happening, right? It's an ongoing, fluid thing. So you notice it's not the bodhisattva establishment, <laughs> or the bodhisattva, this is how you do it, or the bodhisattva institution. It's a way, it's a flowing thing, okay? So it's alive, and it's ever-changing, and it's that call-and-response quality with the world, with ourselves, listening and responding, calling out ourselves and being responded to, live, alive and dynamic. So that's the way side of it. Then there's the word bodhisattva, which um, you can talk about in different ways. If you break it apart, bodhi is, the root of that word is light, and it's connected to awakening. And sattva means body or being. So a bodhisattva is an awakened being. So in the larger sense, using, you know, looking through the Buddhist thought and even connected to the cosmology, a bodhisattva is a being who has reached enlightenment and has an opportunity, if you look at the Tibetan tradition of uh, rebirth, when that person dies, has the opportunity to step off of the wheel of birth and death and no longer come back and cycle through existence, to be completely liberated and free. But the bodhisattva instead chooses to come back to the world, to be reborn, to help others, to give up their own freedom, ultimate liberation, in order to come back and help everybody until all beings can step off at the same time and we do it all together. So that's the larger sense of a, what a bodhisattva is. The more immediate sense of it is 
When we practice this practice, it's not just for us individually. We do it for the world. We do this so we can help others. So that's our way of returning to the world. We don't do this practice to escape and like, find peace within ourselves and live up in a cabin in the woods, which is where I'm heading after this. <laughs> um, so it's necessary to go to the cabin, but we have to come back out to the world. This practice that we do is for the world. It's not for ourselves. We must benefit others. We must benefit existence. <coughs> and so the Bodhisattva way, it's, um, I'm looking at what I wrote here. I think these words sound, well, let's see if they sound good. I, I said that combining those two, the way and being a Bodhisattva is about continually turning to and returning to life, the world, and existence with the question, how can I help? That would be what it is to follow the Bodhisattva way. And then when we combine that way of being and way of meeting the world with the precepts, um, what I find the precepts to be, and the one thing I'll say that they are, and speaking for me, is something that gives me the support and tools and the ability to not turn away from the world. Sometimes I really like to. I'd like to be able to escape and go to that mountain cabin. I'd make arrangements with you if I wanted to go there permanently. <laughs> <laughs> but the bodhisattva, I mean, the precepts, the vows, they help me not turn away and also help me to turn more fully into and engage when I think I can't. They provide that support and encouragement. And then, so I want to return to the impossibility of all this. Keep that in mind. Not just today, not just during these sessions, but at life in general, in life in general. When you're out there and you're trying to do something and it feels impossible, that's okay. That's the nature of things. Do your best anyway. Go for it. <laughs> these are by their nature impossible. And um, a couple of Wednesdays ago, David Cockrell spoke and shared an insight and realization, I'll call it. Something that warmed my heart and I was very appreciative of that kind of speaks to being in the face of impossibility. And I would love for you to shut me up by sharing that now and then from there we'll open it up further. Hmm. <laughs> well, what... Uh actually is on my mind right now. Um, I, <clears throat> I took, took the precepts for the first time in 2001. Um, so these have been a, I've been living with them, they've been living with me since then. And, um, you know, you mentioned liberation as a component of the Bodhisattva way and um, making the choice to come back and be helpful to everyone. And um, so the way I'm viewing the precepts is that, at this point, the way they feel for me now is that they are gateways to liberation. 
And this practice for me is more about freedom than anything else. And I am realizing that freedom. And uh, so, you know, they, they, they also, they tend to pop up like whack-a-moles. And I, I mean, I don't like the image of whacking them down, but the one that's up for me these days, uh, lately, has been gossip. And so I've been practicing with the precept of not gossiping. And it's incredible the freedom that that brings to just hold confidentiality when people ask me to. And um, it, uh, it's an example of the freedom that comes. And I, I, find these, I find these things working, for those of you who know something about, about physics, I find them working for me like vectors. They are forces that move through my, my life. Another way to describe it would be threads in a tapestry. And so there are many, many other threads, but the threads of the preset are there, and I'm, I'm aware of them. And I'm aware of them all the time, really. And so it's like, oh, would that be a lie? Hmm. You know, would there be some element of that that's really not me, like, being totally forthcoming? And if I say it, and I'm not really being forthcoming, how will that trap me? And um, so what, that's not at all what Andrew's asking me to talk about, but there is a connection, believe it or not. So briefly, um, <clears throat> one of the things that's up in our culture right now, I think, <coughs> around Mr. Trump and around climate change and around um, talk about compassion around the, our issues, our crying issues of social justice and um, the way we've treated women and the way we've treated minorities um, is a question of hope and hopelessness. And um, I think there are many of us now who are wondering if there's any hope, if there's any hope for this species to have any sense of future. Um, and especially this culture in this country, is there any hope that the American way has a way forward? And what, and then there's this question of hopelessness and what does it mean to become hopeless? And so what these things, where I'm at with these things is that hope is really a feeling. And it's also a projection. It's a, it's, a, it's a plan, it's a future. And what feelings are, feelings change. Feelings are not permanent. Like thoughts are not permanent. They come and go. And the idea of a future is really just that. It's really just an idea. It's just, it's a fantasy. It's something that's in my head. And, I mean, my career was as a planner, so I was about creating futures. But I think that, uh, <coughs> that, that uh, futures, I'm trying to be brief here now, futures and hope for a future can be, um, they're not necessary. That, that's the bottom line. It's not necessary. That uh, 
The only thing that is really real is right now. And right now is a subjective thing that we, we create right now too. Um, but right now is happening. And if I can free myself from <coughs> my suffering and from my entrapments and really <coughs> be here, then I can walk the Bodhisattva walk, you know, which is a firm life, a firm life, a firm life, a firm life. There's nothing else, just a firm life, each moment. And it's not about hope. It's not about hopelessness. That doesn't matter. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't even know what has happened. Because history and the past is also a fabrication. The only thing is right now. And so, to weave this all together, I, I would say that the precepts are like gateways <coughs> that open our lives to freedom. And one of the things that we can be free from is all of these worries about a future and the questions of what kind of hope there is for that. I just don't think it's that relevant. I think that freedom is about the freedom to be really here, really here. And that thing about the cake, I think that's about that too. That, the, the way I like to say it in Buddhist terminology, is feed low on the skandhas, which means stay with the, the basic experience. Stay with this experience now and not let it like blow up into ideas and thoughts and concepts and theories but just be with what's happening right now. Is that anything like what you wanted to say? Well, if it's still something that you can speak to, the thing was, I mean, that, that's, I'm not saying, uh, that was good, I like that. That's, it shows where things have gone maybe from that moment. But you talked about a moment, I think you are at Crestone, and somebody said in a conversation, it's kind of hopeless. And you noticed in yourself, you're like, actually, I don't find I think you're expressing that, but I didn't know if you, if there's anything still alive in that, what happened just then that you'd care to share, but it's up to you. Well, I, I mean, what I remember about it is that what I came to realize is it, it wasn't that important. Yeah. Whether it was hopeless or hopeful. It's just be, it's just walk that walk. Just each step is a firm life, a firm <coughs> life. Just do the thing that nourishes me and, and everyone else. And the future will take care of itself. Yeah, so the abandon all hope, ye who enter here. <laughs> we mean it, it quite literally for a good reason. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I heard you. That's what, that was it. You, you were speaking to that whole thing of don't worry about all that. It's here. Yeah, so thank you. <laughs>